Hey there, dear listener. I would just like to say thank you for listening. And before we begin, my name is Blaine, and I am a biologist who specializes in herpetology. And all of the opinions and thoughts expressed here are my own and are not affiliated with any institution or organization with which I may be a member. This is simply just an outgrowth of my passion to share science and my excitement of all the things that I learn along the way in my science journey. I may read sections of papers, but I will make it abundantly clear when I read directly from those papers and that those authors are not affiliated with me in any way unless otherwise stated. Anything else is simply my thoughts or explanations of what I know. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Silly Salamander Scientist Podcast. I am your host. Today, we're going to be going over something that is very near and dear to my heart, and that is herpetology. I want to give you a brief introduction to what herpetology is and what it isn't and some of the general things that you should just really understand about the field. Um, and we'll, we'll see how far I get without uh, going too crazy on time. And so some of the things that I really want to cover are some terms that you might have heard before and are likely incorrect. There is a lot of misconceptions out there when it comes to herpetology and really just um, the species that are involved in herpetology in general. There's a lot of hatred or disdain or misconceptions about some of the species that are just really near and dear to my heart. Uh, snakes are a really good example of that. And I just want to try and come here and clear some of the air once and for all uh, for some of these species that honestly just never really have gotten their fair share, uh, their fair shake, I think. And I think that comes down to a lot about our evolutionary history and our uh, interactions with them in the past. And so without further ado, let's go ahead and get into our uh, primer course on herpetology, which is just our intro. So were snakes cold-blooded? Did dinosaurs really have feathers? Will my mom ever truly love me? We're going to answer at least two of those questions as we talk about my absolute specialty, my absolute favorite thing in the world, and that is herpetology. And so so what is herpetology? It, it's, it's a term that comes from the Greek root uh, herpetos, which means to creep, and logi, which means the study of. So herpetology is just the study of things that creep, uh, but that doesn't mean all of the creatures are creepy. It doesn't mean that there's anything inherently wrong with them. And uh, one of the terms that you're going to hear me say a lot is herpetofauna, and they're not creepy or scary. A lot of them are honestly really cute, at least I think in my opinion. Herpetofauna are really just any of the creatures that are in a particular location that are studied under the guise um, of herpetology. And by guise, I, I mean more uh, the umbrella, as in, you know, the, the field itself tends to to cover these guys. And so uh, that's nothing nothing crazy. You might have even heard herpetofauna before if you're kind of a little bit invested into this field, which uh, I hope you are, because and I hope by the end of this that you will be. But how do we define what herpetology is? How do we define what we study while we, someone who's a herpetologist, how do, you, how do you know, how did we get to this point? And so there are a few ways to look at this. There are the general ways that it can be inferenced from likely avenues, and those are, those are twofold. And that is evolutionary relationships or morphological similarities. And so what does that mean? So evolutionary relationships is basically if it comes from a certain lineage or a certain line, it gets included into the study. And then there is morphological uh, similarities where that is anything that these creatures might do, anything that these creatures might not do inherently. Um, and those are two really good ways about of, of thinking about how science is done in general. Any certain type of clade or lineage might be studied under one um, 
one umbrella uh, of a term or a name. So think, uh, think of mammalogy, where it is the study of mammals. And every creature that is studied within mammalogy is a mammal. And then there's ornithology, where everything that is studied in ornithology is... Um, a it is a bird it is an avian it is a non-avian dinosaur but things start to get a little bit more complicated when you start to understand the relationships of these creatures to themselves and to one another and so evolutionary relationships is a really good starting point but it falls short because reptiles and amphibians aren't genetically the closest relatives to each other and I know that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense but let me try and do my best to explain it to you so when you look at a cladogram or a phylogenetic tree, and they're kind of somewhat the same thing, but they have their differences, they might show you any number of different things. They might show you any number of different types of relationships. But one of the things, a couple of things are actually really certain. Amphibians are not closely related to turtles. And turtles aren't really closely related to lizards or snakes. Snakes and lizards are pretty close, but crocodiles aren't actually that closely related to lizards or snakes or amphibians. They're actually more closely related to birds. And that doesn't really make sense if you think about it, because, I mean, you know, a crocodile is kind of just like a big lizard, right? Well, yes and yes and no, but... If you're going to, say, have, like, a family reunion or a cookout or something, a crocodile is actually more likely to go to the family reunion with birds than it would be with amphibians. And it would actually be kind of the same as it going to the family reunion with mammals if you kind of look at a general um, phylogenetic tree. And it, it's kind of weird. It doesn't really make sense, but, it, but it's really cool. And so there are some terms that you really need to understand here. There is um, different groups. There are tetrapods, which are any for like an animal, and but th that's about the most uh, general that I can give you. And then there's amniotes. Amniotes are where there is an amniotic fluid that is involved in the production of that creature. Think of, you know, when your, your mom might have been pregnant with you, there's a lot of amniotic fluid around you keeping you uh, warm and secure and, and everything like that. that. Those two things are really defining of the groups that we're talking about here. And uh, clades is a, a, a good thing to look up. And if you don't know that, I'm going to reference clades. Um, clades are just kind of any group that are related and don't go further back in, in a general sense. And so tetrapods includes things uh, like frogs, salamanders, uh, turtles, crocodiles, birds, marsupials, and mammals. I mean, I use mammals, but I know marsupials are mammals, but like you, you get the idea that includes all of those different types of things. But amniotes, on the other hand, doesn't include all of that things. Amphibians are not included in amniota. And so that there is a very big distinction right there between all of these different groups. And so if you're looking at in an evolutionary type of sense, it doesn't really make sense to include amphibians in the study of mammals and reptiles because that is a very very big dividing line between if you want to think about it this way the old world and the new world you know amphibians were on land and you know so were reptiles and so were mammals but there was a transition period where things were kind of coming out of the water and 
the evolutionary benefits of having the amniotic fluid around there was more diversification. And so one of the things that you have to take into consideration is both evolutionary relationship and these morphological differences. So keep that in mind when, as we go along here, and I'll come back to this as well. But with all of these different relationships, we really can't say that studying herpetology would be better if we did it along an evolutionary line because these things aren't the most closely related to each other. You know, if you wanted to say you wanted to study uh, herpetology, you know, you might be able to say you want to study amphibians and mammals. And that would make honestly just as much sense as studying some of these groups as we do together, like reptiles and amphibians and birds. It, it would make just about as much sense as that. And so as we go along, it does. it wouldn't really make sense to lump all these and have these arbitrary dividing lines between all of these groups if you're looking at it from an evolutionary perspective. Now, what about morphology? Where where does that fall? And I already kind of talked about that a little bit. Reptiles and amphibians do share a number of characteristics um, that are similar, but they also already differ. And we've already kind of gone through one of those, which is uh, the amniotic fluid. And one of those things that reptiles and amphibians do share that is... Um, kind of kind of unique to them but kind of not is ectothermy and ectothermy is where the body temperature is dependent on the external temperatures and external stimuli um and that is what a term you might hear referred to as cold-blooded cold-blooded is not a thing the term is ectothermy and it's the the reason why we call it cold-blooded is you when you describe things to people that are not really familiar with what you're doing um you kind of have to, you have to simplify it down until it's wrong and no more. Because if it isn't kind of wrong, people really wouldn't understand it. And so ectothermy is where the outside ambient temperature or the temperature of the local environment, and I use local to mean local to the individual, is very influential, if not completely limiting to that individual and how it functions and how it performs in some of its activities. But what it really means is that the internal metabolic processes are not great enough in heat that it can sustain those without help from the external environment. So that is the dividing line between between uh, endotherms and ectotherms. But one of the interesting things that you may not realize is that there are actually cheats for this. One of the big debates in science is whether or not um, dinosaurs were, in fact, ectothermic. But it gets a little bit complicated because the larger that you get, you can kind of cheat that system. So when you talk about, uh, like, theropod dinosaurs, and those are uh, your two-legged carnivorous dinosaurs, um, those likely wouldn't would have been more ectothermic, but when you start talking about the large sauropod dinosaurs, those would have been endothermic because of their large size. You know, once you get up to that sort of the uh, sort of size and you're warm and like everything's going, it's going to be really hard to lose all that temperature. So they kind of cheat. But we also do have evidence of dinosaurs living in cold environments, meaning that the larger that these animals were and the more specialized they were to their environments, the more they kind of 
adapted or cheated their own little systems, and it's not, and I say cheating in a, in a relatively loose term, but you, you get my point where these animals were able to adapt even because, you know, over overcoming some of their limitations in a way, and it's not necessarily limitation, but ectothermia itself isn't even limited to amphibians and reptiles because fish are actually ectothermic as well, but they're not included in this course of study. So what about the eggs? But amphibian eggs don't have a hard uh, calcified shell like lizards do. Uh, mammals don't even have eggs. I mean, we do, but we don't have external eggs that we lay, and that's what I mean when I when I say that. But reptiles and amphibians don't have the same type of eggs. So it really means that there are lots of differences um, between these groups. Like, not all amphibians, you know, amphibians don't have claws, while reptiles do have claws, and the teeth differ, and, you know, body structures differ, and all kinds of different things like that. So the morphology of these creatures really isn't it either. So if it's not the familial relationship or shared characteristics, what is it then? Well, honestly, it's just tradition. That's how it's been done since the field started, and that's how it will continue to be done. Some of these creatures, you know, don't really align in any type of way that they would overlap in in anything other than that's just kind of how we've always done this. And we really can't separate it now. I mean, people specialize in different types of uh, herpetofauna, but, you know, that there's no... There, there, there are honestly even some people that don't put turtles into, um, into herpetology because their evolutionary lineage is just so distinct and the, the body plan and how they came about is so much different than the, the other groups that we're talking about. They don't even include them in the actual study of herpetology. They acknowledge that it's kind of just a traditional thing that we've done for a long while and something that we are going to continue to do. Um, and so, so with that, each lineage of herpetofauna could be an area study all to themselves. You know, they could honestly, and they do, and most people honestly really just kind of study one thing. There's very few people out there that are really going to just switch after they get a PhD and, you know, into looking into just different amounts of things. Those people are a little bit fewer and far betweener, especially as you get um, further along into your scientific career. Uh, those people become much, much less. People tend to specialize and focus on one specific type of herpetofauna. And so a lot of our world is influenced by the Greeks. Uh, and I'm sure that does comes as no shock to you. But Aristotle and all of the other philosophers oh goodness Aristotle and all the other philosophers were really keen to lump together the things that they found um, on earth and so you know they were the first ones to really kind of bring it to um, where they were all just kind of studied under one they were all kind of you know grouped under one and, and I, I say studied and I say that very loosely um, and honestly they did pretty well you know, they, they were very limited and they didn't, you know, classify some things as really as they should have, but there's always room for improvement, like no matter what we're doing. And, you know, while we're talking about classifying and describing, uh, Nick Hander, uh, I believe he was, I want to say he was, I don't remember if he was Greek or not. I can't remember. Um, he was interested in venomous snakes and it's really cool. I think venoms of snakes are really cool as well. There are, um, there are different types of toxins and different types of venoms and all those different types of things. And we'll get into those. And that's a really cool section that I can't really wait to get into. But 
you know, some of these uh, older people did and older, I, you know, old in time, I guess I could say, uh, did pretty well considering a lot of their limitations and a lot of their biases that they did have. Uh, and notable in herpetology is actually uh, Georges Cuvier. Hopefully I said that name wrong. Uh, he was actually famous for naming the pterodactyly later renamed to Pterodactylus, and Jean-Baptiste Lamarck and his work on the early systematics. Uh, so those are two people who uh, did work on herpetology, and if you if you want to learn more about them, just let me know. Uh, Charles Darwin did work with iguanas, and one of my personal favorites who is considered a herpetologist is Steve Irwin, one of the most influential people in my life, and he gave us many, many years of education on all kinds of different herp species, including crocodiles and Komodo dragons. And I, I love just getting to watch, uh, going back and watching the old videos of Steve Irwin, uh, just teach about all of these different creatures. It's honestly fantastic to even watch today with how old those are. And I will never forget his influence on my life uh, when it comes to how much conservation work he did and the inspiration and just the generations of care that he inspired in this world. And so remember when I mentioned uh, the pterodactyly was renamed? Well, that was actually uh, because of Carolus Lanius, the father of taxonomy. But one of the things that you might not know is he kind of hated, uh, he kind of hated reptiles and amphibians. The man who said, if you don't know the names of things, the knowledge of them is lost too. He also quoted, these foul and loathsome animals are abhorrent because of their cold body, pale color, cartilaginous skeleton, filthy skin, fierce aspect, calculating eye, offensive smell, harsh voice, uh, squalid habitation, and terrible venom, and so their creator has not exerted his powers to make many of them. Honestly, I'm not sure if he was entirely talking about um, reptiles and amphibians or if he was talking about people who don't shower before they go to Magic the Gathering tournaments. Anyways, that was just a little joke for you. I hope you appreciated that. But uh, opinions like that should be squashed. Because reptiles and amphibians are actually very, very diverse. When you look at just the, the total amount of vertebrates, 21% of what we can, would consider herpetofauna, they, they make up 21% of vertebrates, but these act, these numbers actually changed, but it's kind of a fair representation. Um, it's interesting because it doesn't actually show the whole story because it's a total number of vertebrates by composition and not diversity of species. So the number of amphibians is fairly consistent around 7,000 unique species described, uh, but it honestly kind of tends to vary depending on what source that you're looking at. And reptiles also add about 10,000 more unique species. So we're already looking at about 17,000 species of reptiles and amphibians just under one umbrella of study. And now mammals themselves, oh yeah, so mammals have around 6,500 species. So they're not, they're not even as diverse as amphibians are. And birds, which we we already know, but we'll get into later, um, are related, more closely related to reptiles and amphibians than they are to anything else. And so if you want to include them under, you know, the, the evolutionary lineage, are range from nine to 20,000 unique species. 
that is a lot of species that we're already talking about when it comes to reptiles and amphibians. So we have to keep all of these, uh, all of these guides straight. Because birds aren't actually a special lineage. They, act, they have to come from somewhere. And so if you remember all of the different, uh, when I talk about tetrapods and amniotes and whatnot, um, birds are amniotes just like turtles, just like lizards, just like snakes, just like crocodiles. And so they're more closely related to those than they would be to amphibians. And when you look at an evolutionary kind of timeline, rather than just the relationships between them, when you look at the actual timeline, tetrapoda, tetrapoda splits into amniota. And when you look at when those species split, so we have the stem tetrapods it basically immediately split off to amphibians. And so that's a lineage all on its own, and then it goes down, and then we have a stem group um, that goes to reptiles, and reptiles kind of splits into turtles, and then tuataras, and, and there's a separate branching lineage that goes to tuataras and lizards and snakes, but snakes actually divulges from lizards, and so crocodiles are actually not even a part of that group. They're their own group that splits away from them, and then birds and dinosaurs are also split off, or birds are split off from dinosaurs, and dinosaurs are split off from reptiles whenever you look at this general type of um, uh, kind of timeline. And then we go to the, from the stem amniotes, where the reptiles and everything else split off, you get to the therapsids, and the therapsids get to the mammals. And the mammals finally get to monotremes, marsupials, and then the placental mammals are kind of the last on the line here, and that's kind of where we've stopped at. Now, Reptiles are more closely related to birds, and there are numerous reasons for why this is true, and we'll get into the phylogenetic specifics uh, portion a, a little bit later. But since birds are relatives to reptiles and amphibians, they have a number of similar characteristics. But they're studied separately because they are derived differently in their ancestry. So the real answer is that all these species included in this area of study are related to one another in one way or another, and they share similar, similar characteristics, and they've been studied together in tradition, which is why we get the fantastic field of study that we do get. But why do we study herpetology? What's the point? Why, why do we spend all this different time and all this effort for some kind of slimy guys living in the ground that you might not even really see? And they, they don't even live in areas that are good for golfing, so like, why would we even really care about them? And it actually might surprise you. They have a number of different environmental roles, if that's what you want to, if that's what you want to talk about. They're pest control, and pest control leads to disease control. They're environmental indicators, meaning that whenever you know you have an area, those are gonna be your canaries in the coal mine. And you know, so the, whenever those guys go first, you know something is really wrong with your environment. And then we have prey and predator dynamics, and and even some medicine are derived from them. Some amphibians are a very unique group because of their different toxins that they have, because some of their defenses and some of the, the in, amazing things that they can do with their bodies. And the, the list goes on. There are numerous different reasons, and we'll, and we'll get into that more in the, the conservation section of the series. And, and so you owe a lot to amphibians, actually, and we would be quite devastated and they are being, we would be devastated by their loss, and we're the ones who are primarily responsible for causing their extinctions. Because amphibians are actually the most threatened vertebrate class on Earth. And that's insane. And whenever you look at um, turtles, they're actually one of the most endangered groups, which I believe, with I believe, uh, 
I want to say it's 61%, but I could be wrong. I'm thinking that off the top of my head, and so fact check me if I'm wrong on that. But there are many, 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 many dedicated scientists. We're not the biggest group, but we all live to study them. We all live to try and save them and conserve them because we all love them very, very much. So while we're here, please join me as we go along. Join me as we talk about herpetology and all of the many different things that come along with these amazing and fantastic creatures. Thank you so much for being with me, and I will see you later.